Our sermon text comes today from Matthew 13, 31 through 33. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He took them another parable, told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. Father, I read it this morning and was so encouraged uh, in Proverbs 25 that like cool water to the soul of one who thirsts is good news from a far country. And that is so true. It's so true that the gospel is good news for our thirsty souls, the news of your kingdom and the promise that Jesus gives us of his triumph in these parables. And how I pray now, Father, that we would receive it as good news. We know that you and he intended as good news for us that will slake the thirst of our souls. And we long uh, to receive it as that good news. And we ask you now in the power of your spirit to, to bring that satisfying uh, joy and rest in the good news of Jesus' triumph to us again this morning. Uh, Lord, we want to linger there. We want to, we want to enjoy and consider the wonder of his victory and the, the depth and strength of his promises to us this morning. We don't want to pass over them lightly. And so grow us in confidence, grow our faith, grow us in trust, grow our joy. And we pray, Father, this morning, particularly for those who have not yet been joined to Christ by faith, we ask that you would make this today their day of their salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you measure these two parables, again, two very familiar parables, if you measure them by their words, they're really small, right? If you just measure them by the number of their words, they're very small. They only fill three verses. But if you measure them by their vision, they are, they're enormous, right? They're vast. They fill the whole earth uh, with Jesus' triumph. They're remarkable parables. They both... Uh, they both are, they have their differences, but in general, they, what unites them is that they, they both tell the story of something that begins very small and ends very big. And their power, their teaching power, really comes from that contrast between small beginnings that you could easily dismiss, mustard seed, just a single mustard seed that grows into a tree. This one piece or part of leaven that ends up leavening a whole bunch of flour, enough flour to feed a whole village. And what Jesus is doing in these parables is he's telling us, he's really telling us about the kingdom of heaven, right? One big story about the kingdom of heaven. It's like the mustard seed. It's like the leaven. But at the same time that he's telling us about the kingdom's story, he's also telling us about two other stories necessarily. Our story, the story of Christians, 
And I, when I say our story, I'm talking about those who are in Christ. And he's also telling us his own story. And those are going to be our three headings this morning as we uh, prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to think about these two parables under those three headings, the kingdom story, how they tell us the kingdom story, how they tell us our story, and how they tell us uh, Jesus' story. So let's think first about the kingdom's story. And in both parables, Jesus makes it real simple. He puts the cookies on the low shelf for us, right? He tells us very explicitly that both parables are describing the kingdom of heaven to us. Notice verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. And again, in verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Now, now just instantly, you ought to be saying, wow, these are these are." absolutely amazing comparisons, right? I mean, can you think of any contrast or any comparison in which the poles of the contrast are farther apart? The kingdom of heaven, which is the biggest, most mighty thing there could be in the universe, right? The biggest thing of all. And what does Jesus compare the kingdom to? A single grain of a mustard seed, and the mustard seed would have been in the disciples' understanding, the crowd's understanding, their settings' understanding, the smallest seed they knew about. And on the other hand, he's describing the kingdom as leaven, leaven that disappears into the dough. Now, that's just breathtaking. That the biggest thing Jesus would describe in terms that and the greatest and the most powerful thing that Jesus would describe in these terms, both of which, right, the mustard seed is small and it's buried in the ground. The leaven is, is not even, it, it, it's so amazing. It disappears from view when you put it in the dough. Its effects, of course, are seen, but it disappears from view. How, how could it possibly be appropriate to compare the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed and leaven? And just right, we're going to, that's what we're going to think about here for the next few minutes. But just right off the bat, what I want you to see is that the very first thing we're supposed to learn, I think, from how breathtakingly surprising these two comparisons are, is, that, is exactly what God says in Isaiah 55, right? God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We should expect the kingdom of heaven to manifest itself, to triumph, and to show God to us according to the wisdom of heaven and not according to the wisdom of earth, okay? So we should be expecting surprises. And we should begin by humbling ourselves, right? that what we're about is not God conforming to our wisdom, but us conforming to his. Uh, there is so much hope in these parables. Uh, you know, as I worked on uh, them this week and thought about them and prayed through them again and again, there was one word that just kept pushing its way to the top of my thoughts, and it was the word of hope. There is so much hope in these parables. I, I just was so encouraged as I thought about them and as I looked at them. Hope, a hope that is grounded in the triumph of God. 
the grace of God coming in from the outside, changing the status quo, and bringing about with certainty his triumph. It's exactly what we read together in our call to worship from Isaiah 11, right? The earth shall be, this is God's promise in Isaiah. It is God's promise there because it was his promise and plan from the beginning in Genesis. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth was made to be flooded with the blessing of knowing God. That was God's design and creation. The fall of Adam and Eve and the spread of sin throughout the world did not thwart that plan because you remember in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? God says, yes, there's, that flood of blessings going to happen. But now after the fall, it's going to happen through judgment. There's going to be a flood of judgment that comes upon my son. And through that flood of judgment, bearing all the judgment, that flood of blessing will be opened up to fill the earth. Friends, that's what these parables are about. There is so much hope. The kingdom story that Jesus is telling us here is about triumph, the triumph of Christ and therefore hope. Both of these parables uh, show us a complete triumph after very small and easily dismissed beginnings. You see, if you just look at the mustard seed when it goes in the ground, you think, that's the smallest of seeds. How much power could that be? But you notice what Jesus says. He says, this mustard seed, this mustard seed, uh, a man takes it, sows it in his field, not the normal place that you plant a mustard seed, by the way, you plant it in a garden, not in a field. And you plant that smallest of seeds, Jesus says, in the field. And what happens is that when it has grown, right, it is larger than all of the garden plants. And not only that, it becomes a tree. And it's such a great tree that the birds of the air come and are drawn to it. And they make their nests in it. It becomes their home. It becomes their shelter. It's an amazing seed. And then there's the leaven, which gets put in it's like sourdough starter. It's not yeast. Okay? That's not how, uh, that, that's not, it's like sourdough starter. Something that's already been leavened, a little piece of it. And it's put in the flour, in the dough. And three measures of flour, the commentators are all over the map about exactly how much flour that is, but all of them agree on this. That's a lot of flour. And so the picture again is the same, right? This small beginning, something that almost disappears out of view, and in the end, right, what happens is there is no part of the dough that isn't leavened. This is very aggressive, militant leaven. Do you see that? It takes territory. It conquers. There is no part. Once that leaven, here's the point, once that leaven is introduced to the dough, there is no stopping it. And it will not leave any part of that dough untouched and untransformed. Those are the pictures of Jesus' 
parables that are showing us the kingdom. It's an image of total conquest, total triumph. And what Jesus is saying is the day of that conquest of, of, God's, of God's kingdom, God's triumph, the day of his triumph has come in his ministry. That he is the one who has come to bring that triumph. Now I want you to think about two implications of these parables when we think about what Jesus is showing us through them about the kingdom story. And the first, first implication has to do with the, the extent of the kingdom, the picture that Jesus gives us of the extent of God's kingdom. How big, how complete is it? Well, I've already suggested it from the parable of the leaven. You, I want you to think about these two images. There is nothing, right? What they're showing us is that there is nothing and no place and nobody and no facet of reality, no sphere of human endeavor, no aspect of our lives, no person that will not be subdued in the end and brought under the authority and the gracious reign of God's kingdom. No one can can defeat the progress of the kingdom of heaven. That's what these parables are saying. Everything, everyone, every place, Jesus is saying through these parables, is going to be kingdomized. It's very much, some of you know this quote by Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch politician and theologian in the 19th century, and he said this. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, Mine! I'm going to say it again. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, Mine! That's what these parables are showing us. And Jesus is telling us, friends, he's assuring us that, that the Lord is going to assert and extend his kingship over every aspect of sin and every aspect of its consequences. All of sin, all of evil, all the consequences of sin is going to be conquered by the reign of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is assuring us as his people that he intends to leave nothing for sin. Now that's a very reassuring thing. I don't know, some of you may be reading the Psalms with me right now in the McShane plan. And what I've noticed early on in the Psalms uh, this morning we got to Psalm 12, but basically from Psalm 3 all the way to Psalm 12, there's just this refrain over and over and over again coming from David, longing for justice, looking to God as the righteous judge because he looks at the world and it is so broken and there's so much cruelty and there's so much evil. And, and David is looking up to God as the righteous judge who sees all and he is longing for the day when God will assert his rightful authority and set things right to overturn injustice and replace it with justice. And Jesus, friend, and, and we have that longing, do we not? You look at the world, it's so broken. It's, there's so much unrighteousness. There is so much wrong. And we, with our legislation and with our attempts at reformation, we are powerless to really change it. 
We can sort of quarantine it, but we can never utterly eradicate it. And Jesus is saying through these parables that the day is coming when it will be eradicated, and it will be by God's power and by the triumph of Jesus Christ, and that's why he has come. So those hopes, those longings for justice, friends, are not in vain. One day, everything, the vision of Philippians 2, this is just like Philippians 2, right? One day, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess in heaven and on the earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The triumph will be complete. Jesus is going to personally and forcibly deprive sin and evil of every square inch of territory that they think that they hold. He's going to take it away from them in the exercise of his sovereign power. And he is going to be seen to be glorious. There will be no aspect of the earth, no aspect of human culture, no aspect of our personal lives that will not be fully leavened by the holiness and triumph of Jesus Christ. The earth is going to be full of the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what these parables are telling us. He will not rest. He will not rest. Your king, my brothers and sisters, will not rest until he has fully eradicated sin from the world and fully brought the glory of God to its expression and its rightful place in the world that God made. He will not rest. That's what these parables are promising us. Now, of course, that immediately raises a question. What about our lives? Now, that's going to be mainly the second point of the sermon, okay? But for now, let me particularly uh, address our non-Christian friends. Friends, look at these parables. If you're a non-Christian, you're here. We are honored that you are with us this morning. It is a privilege to have you with us. And I believe you're here by the mercy of God. And one of the reasons that I believe God has brought you here is so that you can be reminded through these parables that, and really warned not to dismiss the outward smallness of Jesus Christ in the world today for his ultimate smallness or his actual smallness. He is the king. And these parables are telling us, mercifully telling us, not to trust the naked eye, but to trust the word of God. And, and there's an opportunity for mercy that's being created by these parables, uh, by God through these parables in your life, my non-Christian friend. And God means for you to see, to be arrested, if you will, by this vision of the triumph of Christ and to be drawn to him today, to make your nest, as it were, in the branches of his triumph, to come to him in repentance and faith today, right now. Not to pass this opportunity by, not to trust your eyes more than you trust the word of God. So that's the kingdom's extent. One day there will be no realm 
that Christ isn't fully manifested as Lord over. And notice as well that this is all God's accomplishment. The kingdom story is about total extent and it's about God's accomplishment. Notice in both of these stories, this is so critical to see. This is like the heart of the gospel being displayed to us. In both of these stories, what happens, right? The field doesn't produce the mustard seed that turns into a tree by itself. Mustard plant, sorry, that turns into a tree by itself. It doesn't produce a seed either. Okay. And the dough doesn't leaven itself, right? What happens in both stories? In both stories, you have someone coming from the outside, moving toward the field with the seed, moving toward the dough with the leaven, and coming in and breaking up the status quo. And by their choice and their power changing the status quo. The dough doesn't leaven itself. The field can't produce a tree by itself. No, someone must come, either the man or the woman, right, must come from the outside, bringing to the soil, bringing to the dough what it needs. And this is a picture, my friends, of God moving toward his creation and grace and in his sovereign power to assert his kingship. Right, The kingdom of heaven is a gift. It is a gift of God to men. This is not, Christianity is not about a man-made self-help utopia. The kingdom of God doesn't erupt out of the earth. It erupts with an eye. That's a great word to know, by the way. You guys know the word eruption, right? Something comes out from within. How many of you knew the word eruption? Did you just learn something? I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N. Eruption. That's something that breaks in from the outside. And that's the vision of the kingdom. The kingdom erupts into the world by God's grace. You know, we can't change ourselves. If God left us to ourselves or left the world to ourselves, we are not going to evolve toward goodness, my friends. Turn the news on. Duh. Look in the mirror and be honest. Duh, right? But there's a rescuing grace of God that comes from the outside. God moving toward us and moving toward the world to bring his kingdom. The hope of men is not found in men, right? It is the gift of God. So let's, that's the kingdom story. Now that has implications for our story and it has implications also for Jesus' story. So that, that first point is the big picture. The big picture of hope is that God's going to triumph and he's going to, what Jesus is telling us is that God's going to triumph as he brings his kingdom through Jesus and his ministry and it's unstoppable. It is unconquerable. It cannot be defeated. But that, has, that big picture story has very dramatic implications for the individual stories of every heir and member of that kingdom, right? Every Christian. Right now, what I'm, who I'm addressing is Christians, those who, are, those who are in Christ. And if you're a non-Christian, the value of what I'm about to say is I am going to be opening up the story of a Christian's life and God's grace in the story of a Christian's life. And, and so I just urge you not to check out. What I urge you to do is to look in very carefully and to see the inside of what it means to know Christ and to live for him and to see and be drawn to him because of the blessings that he brings in the Christian's life. It is absolutely astonishing. 
So what's true of the kingdom at the macro level is going to be mirrored in the individual stories of every Christian. Now, like that mustard seed, friends, I want you to think about the beginning of the Christian life, the beginning of your Christian life. And like that mustard seed, it looked very small, didn't it? It was much larger than you realized at the time. I mean, the beginning of the Christian life, here's what it looks like, right? Acts 16.31, it's what Paul and Silas said to the Philippian jailer when he says to them, what must I do to be saved? And they say, do you remember? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Oh, it sounds so simple. It's so small. Or Romans 10, right? 9 and 10. If you believe, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Right? For with the heart man believes and is justified, and with the tongue he confesses and is saved. It seems like such, such a small and easy thing. And in a sense it is. But it is massive in its implications, isn't it? That beginning is so powerful, though it might look small, the triumph of God in that beginning cannot be overstated. I was reminded of this last week in a couple of the passages, a couple of the verses that we looked at last week in our assurance of pardon on Easter Sunday and then also during the sermon, right? Do you remember Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14? Paul's talking about what happened in our conversions, right? It might look like we, we have just bowed our knees and just prayed this simple prayer, which is all it takes, right? To do that sincerely from the heart, you'll be welcomed into the kingdom. John Owen says, a little faith gives a whole Christ. A little faith gives a whole Christ. But what happens from God's side in that mighty action is is just stunning. And in Colossians 1, Paul says, He has delivered us. He's describing what happens in conversion. He has, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is enormous. Or John 5.24, right? Everyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Really? That's all? He, Jesus goes on to say, He does not come into judgment. Wait wait a second, you mean I I hear your word, Jesus? I hear your promise? I believe that you're sent by the Father to be the Savior of sinners? And when I sincerely believe that, repenting of my sins, you're saying that I have eternal life, that I don't come into judgment? Yes. Jesus is even saying more than that. He, Jesus goes on to say, has passed out of judgment into life. Already. That's huge. That's just absolutely massive. That's what happened, friends, in your conversion. You, by God's power, by the work and declaration of Christ, you passed out of death into life. You you were spared the judgment of God because the final judgment of God was issued against your sins at Calvary and you, at your conversion, came into the shelter of that provision. Oh, my word, how 
big is that? It looks so small from the outside. But the progress of the Christian life, as you go on and on and on, here's what happens. Like that mustard seed, like that leaven, that beginning continues to grow in the Christian life. And more and more, the reality of the kingship of Jesus extending his rule in your life invincibly, lovingly, persistently, what happens as he brings more and more of your life under his rule is that you begin to discover that what really happened at your conversion is that you began then to repent of your sins. And you began to believe in him as your savior. And you began to submit your life to him as your Lord and King. And that the rest of the Christian life is the discovery, the amazing, jaw-dropping, wonder-filled discovery over and over and rediscovery over and over again that the same gospel that conquered you in your conversion is the gospel that continues to leaven every area of your life with the power and the fragrance and the beauty of Christ's kingship. That's what the Christian life is. It's just like these parables. The king comes into your life from the outside. Not even because you asked him. Before you even asked him, before you even, you even sought him, he sought you first. And he moved toward you. He didn't meet you in the middle. You didn't meet him in the middle. He came all the way. All the distance, all the burden, all the weight, all the work, all the responsibility, all the decisions that mattered most, he made. He did. He crossed that distance, came into your life, planted by the power of his spirit, the seed of his gospel. And that seed grows. It can't fail to because it's his. And it's bearing fruit more and more. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, right? The love of Christ controls us. Not controlled us at our conversion, but the love of Christ is progressively, continually controlling us. Because we have concluded this, we're thinking through the gospel. One died for all, therefore all died. God's intent, Jesus' intent, was to give himself as the substitute. One died for all. He went to the cross as a substitute for all of his people. And the next phrase, therefore all have died. The successful outcome of Jesus' intent to substitute himself for us was that in fact... Every one of Christ's people, everyone who trusted Christ, was died to sin in him at the cross, fully, finally, completely. Now, why did he do that? Paul goes on to say, he did that so that we who live would no longer live for ourselves. In other words, not as our own kings, but for him who for our sake died and was raised for the king. That's how the Christian life works. Right, This seed of the gospel that you keep revisiting and, 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 and re-remembering and putting together again in your life and, and singing that same beautiful song that gets more and more beautiful the more you sing it. 
It is taking all of your thoughts and all of your life captive to this beauty of Christ. And friends, it will do this not because you're strong enough or because I'm strong enough or because our resolve is perfect enough, because it won't be, right? This, like the kingdom story, is God's accomplishment. And it is God's power that brings it to pass, right? Philippians 1.6, he who, I'm confident of this very thing, the Apostle Paul says, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He'll do it. There is hope, friends, of this transformation continuing and being successful, not because you're going to finally learn your lesson and you're going to make the right decisions. No, it's the power, nothing less than the purpose and the power of God committed to work within you to apply, to finish what he began to apply in your conversions, to make sure that every single area and facet of your existence as one who's in Christ is going to be fully leavened with the triumph of Jesus Christ. There will be no area of your life, my Christian brother or sister, that does not radiate the triumph of Christ in the end. Because God says, that everyone whom he predestined, these he also called. And everyone whom he called, these he also justified. And everyone whom he justified, these he also glorified. It is certain because God has promised it. You know what that means? It means so many good things. It means that your failures and my failures cannot defeat the power of Christ. It means that your mistakes cannot overpower all that Jesus has gotten right. It means that the day is coming when we will see and know that none of our groanings have been in vain. That every longing we have had for Christ-likeness, every tear we have shed over our sin and the gap between how we live and what we know our destiny is, perfect conformity to Christ, that every tear we have shed over that gap will be answered in full. That one day, the trench warfare of sanctification, the Romans 7 trench warfare of sanctification is going to be over. And it's going to be superseded by glorification. Temptation will be a thing of the past. The battle with sin will be totally defeated. There will be no trace, no scar, no mark of the fall or any of its consequences in your soul or even in your resurrection body. You will be healed. That's what these parables mean. And that doesn't happen because of your power or your resolve. It happens because of the power of the king and the purpose of the king. The day is coming when the lives of every single one of Christ's people will be full, full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is hope, my friends. Oh, there is hope a hope that's grounded in the king's triumph. And that's our final point, is that this is, these parables are really about Jesus' story. 
See, the reason there's hope in the kingdom story and the reason there's hope for our stories is because ultimately, ultimately what Jesus is describing is his story because the kingdom reflects the character and the triumph of the king. It's, it's a remarkable thing to think of how small Jesus is in the eyes of the world. How insignificant he is. How irrelevant he is in the eyes of men. How unimportant he is in the eyes of men. How peripheral he is in the eyes of men. It's amazing to think about how patient he is and how gracious and how how much self-control he has in the face of that belittling. And you know why it's so remarkable that he is so small in the eyes of the world, so insignificant, so irrelevant, so optional, so boring in the eyes of the world? Do you know why it's so remarkable that he is all those things in the eyes of the world? It's because of how great he actually is in the eyes of God. How significant, how weighty, how essential, how central, how relevant to every life, and how beautiful. You know, at the beginning of the sermon, I told you that these parables prepare us or remind us that, uh, of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, right? That God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that was true, but it was only half of the truth. Because what these parables show us is that God's ways are not, and his thoughts are not only higher than our ways and thoughts, but they're also far, far lower than our ways and thoughts. And let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean by that is this. Think about how Jesus' ministry begins as a seed of the woman, the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. Now, God had promised Right, that the Messiah, that the deliverer would come and that he would be a seed of the woman. But who ever imagined that the eternal Son of God would make himself that seed? Who ever imagined that the eternal Son of God, the emperor of the universe, would hide himself from view as an embryo in the womb of a virgin? Who ever imagined that? And that's absolutely stunning, is it not? The biggest one of all, the greatest one of all, emptying himself so that he can enter a virgin's womb. That is astonishing. And planted there by the grace of God, think about how he grew. You know, he grew in wisdom before his father. He grew in favor with God. And the longer he grew in favor and the greater he grew in the eyes of God, he grew smaller in the eyes of men. He kept growing smaller in the eyes of the world until he, he literally, as it were, disappeared from view on the cross. He was so small and insignificant on the cross that even the two men crucified on either side of him heaped scorn and derision on him. He was, he was at the lowest place of the earth. He was the smallest man who had ever lived The whole judgment of crucifixion is that here's a life that doesn't matter. Here's a life that the world doesn't care about. And this one who is the ultimate authority, the ultimate significance, the weightiest one himself, made himself the smallest one. And he disappeared from view in that tomb, didn't he? 
And God raised him from the dead. And something now is growing in the world. There is a power of life that God has released. You see, Jesus, I think, is very much like that mustard seed, my friends. On the cross, right, his shame, his rejection, his suffering, it it makes it very hard for us to see his glory. But God raising him from the dead, right, proved that he was the seed of God's choosing, that he was the only seed great enough to bear the flood of God's judgment against the sins of his people, and to bring the flood of blessing that God had intended to fill the earth with in the knowledge of his glory, that Jesus was that seed. Think, think about what an amazing power of life God has released in the world through that seed of Jesus' death that has started to grow, has started to grow in its resurrection. The tree that God has grown from that, right? The tree of his condemnation that has been changed by God's grace into the tree of our exoneration and our justification, right? The tree of his cursing that by the power of God and his triumph in Christ has become the tree of our blessing. The tree of his death is the tree of our life. He is alive today for us now and gives his life to us at this table. And friends, Jesus is that leaven. He's the leaven as well. His lordship, his power is filling the world, right? It, it's, it's not something that can be easily seen with the naked eye, but the eyes of faith see his kingship, his authority, his kingdom being extended in the midst of the nations as his people carry the news of him into the world. And one day, it's going to be totally obvious to everyone. It will be inescapably obvious to everyone, Paul says in Philippians 2. And so you say, well, okay, well, if he's such a great king, why then is he still veiled in so many ways in his fullness from the world? Well, there's one answer, right? His willingness, his humility, his willingness to veil himself today is our opportunity because it means that there is mercy that's available. There is still time to come to him and to make your home in Christ, to find shelter for your life in him, that God would be your dwelling place in Jesus Christ. You see, if he came in all of his fullness and he didn't restrain himself, there would be no choice, right? And there would be no opportunity for mercy. So in holding himself back, he's created an opening for his mercy to be received and enjoyed. And I pray that you will come in with a faith-filled abandon to embrace him this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your triumph and for all the power and fruitfulness of that triumph in the world and in our lives. We ask now that the power of your victory would bear rich fruit in our lives this morning as we celebrate at your table. And we pray in your name. Amen.